The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI public health professor, Andrew Neumer. This is Dr. Neumer's fourth time on UCI Conversations because one of his areas of expertise is pandemics, particularly the 1918 flu and now also COVID-19. Need I say more? Since the first time he was on the show 15 months ago, I say this with a swallow, 582,000 Americans have died from COVID. Globally, 3,300,000 have died, and there are probably many more unreported deaths. While Southern California is continuing its amazing turnaround from the November-February surge, There are still places in the United States and the world that are severely struggling in crisis. And the fact is, based on our experience of this roller coaster pandemic so far, we here in Orange County should continue to stay vigilant. But that's my opinion. Let's talk to the expert. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Professor Neumer. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your show. It's always good to be back on your show and and on KUCI. Great. Is it possible to just give us your overall perspective of where are we in Orange County in the second week of May 2021? Absolutely. Orange County is doing great, in fact. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk during the broadcast about you know the, the United States writ large and, in, and in the world, including India and whatnot. But mm. Orange County here in the broadcast radius of KUCI is doing wonderfully. We had a huge wave last winter, the, the winter of 2020 slash 2021. The peak was in early January, and things have been looking better ever since. We have, for a week now, under 100 people hospitalized with COVID in the county. Of course, we'd like to see zero, but the listeners will remember that in early January, there were over 2,500 people in the hospital countywide. You know, I, you know, Professor, I think the public, including myself, you know, we get so inundated with statistics and so forth. I had no idea how many people were hospitalized. So, so yeah. So right now it's 
It's under a hundred. Wow. And and it was over two thousand five hundred at the at the worst point. So it's a huge decrease in terms of the hospitalization. Now the hospitalization is probably one of the most reliable numbers because testing differences can mask if we just look at cases, a case of COVID is really a positive test. That's how we've sort of fallen into reporting things. I mean, you know, in a strict epidemiological sense, a case would be an overt illness. Mm. And, but we've, since the early days of the pandemic, we've fallen into the habit of, and it's a bad habit, but it's one that we're sort of stuck with now, mm-hmm. of calling a positive test a, a case. So those numbers will fluctuate a little bit based on how many tests have been done in a given day. But hospitalization is a, is a lot more reliable as a barometer because you know it means that someone felt sick enough to seek medical attention and that the medical professionals who assessed this person felt that they were sick enough to hospitalize. Right. And it's a lot more objective standard. Right. How about, can you say, you know, we're going to get into a lot more details, but in just in terms of prognosis for, you know, the, the rest of the year, or are you hesitant to talk about that or can you? Prognosis for the near future is great, I believe. And what I mean by that is, from now, and we're taping this in early May 2021, and from then until basically throughout the end of the summer. So from now until Labor Day, you know, I foresee, you know, pretty lenient conditions and, and a summer that's going to be more like the summer of 2019 than the summer of 2020. You know, the numbers are looking good. And, and of course, this can change. And so it's possible you'll have me on the show again sometime over the summer to, for me to give you a less optimistic outlook, I, although I hope not. I hope things, you know, my prediction will come true that, w- that we're in a very lenient period. You know, we came off a big wave in the winter. We now have had weeks and weeks of improving numbers, and, and the numbers have gotten to the point where prevalence is low, test positivity is low, hospitalization is low. People are vaccinated in increasing numbers. And you know, I, I hope that we can continue to expand vaccination countywide for you know, anyone who wants a vaccine. There's still some hesitancy on the vaccine front, which is unfortunate. But you know, I, I hope uh, we can win some hearts and minds, maybe even with this interview. And you know, and I do think that the summer at least is going to be more lenient. We've seen that summer waves are less severe than winter waves. Like the the wave we had in July last summer, which we thought at the time was bad, Mm -hmm. uh, actually paled in comparison to the one we had in December and early January. There's this propensity for viral pathogens to spread less fiercely in the summertime. So we will see, I believe, you know, a continued leniency in the summer and then we'll know a lot more about what to expect in the fall as we approach the fall. There are variants, as I'm sure the listeners have heard by now, that there's viral lineages that are cousins of one another. And sometimes this causes you know, new waves. But the vaccines seem to be holding fast against the variants. And so if more people get vaccinated, we can possibly 
you know, nip all the future waves in, in the bud. That's, that's fantastic. You know, just to edify all of us in the general public, can you explain uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are messenger RNA, mRNA. Can you explain just briefly in, in layman's terms, what that means? Absolutely. Or I'll try, I'll try. It's a little bit, you know, esoteric for most people, but the virus itself is, is like a sphere. It's like a, a beach ball with a bunch of spikes sticking out of it. And I mean, this is radio, but your listeners have seen by now. The yeah, biggest pictures. Yeah, exactly. So, and is that unusual that, you know, that kind of a shape is that unusual? Well, vi- viruses come in different shapes and huh. sizes, but, uh, huh. but I mean, it's an enveloped virus with spike proteins. So it's not unlike influenza in that respect. So it's not, it's not totally unique. I mean, influenza has epidemiologically speaking, some differences from COVID-19, but, but the actual uh, shape of the virus is, uh, is similar, but uh, is, is the coronavirus, is the influenza virus, is it a coronavirus? No, influenza oh. is, is not a, uh, in the coronavirus family. Oh, okay. It's in, it's, it's in a different uh, uh, family. Okay. So j- yeah, just back to like just a short description of what. Yeah, sure. So the mRNA, messenger RNA, I mean, the, uh, so, I mean, the, the, the reason why the, the viral shape is significant and is, is those spike proteins are, are what the virus uh, kind of presents to the human immune system. Like the first thing that the human immune system sees is it's what's on the outside of the, of the beach ball. It's those spikes. And so it makes antibodies to against those spikes is these little proteins that stick to the spikes and, mm. and, and neutralize. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's, it's imagine being covered in Velcro or something. It, it would be hard to, to do your daily activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of what the antibodies do. They, they stick to the they kind of goop, they, they goop it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what the uh, mRNA does is it's a nucleic acid. It's instructions on how to build those spike proteins. So what humans are, I mean, all of life, encodes itself in nucleic acid like the the blueprint for life is encoded in nucleic acid either rna or dna so humans are dna based and we uh we create um and so our entire genome you know is encoded in in 23 chromosomes of dna and the various proteins that make up our body that are coded for this uh, dna and when our body needs more, you know, of some protein, it makes copies of a relevant gene. And those copies are made with mRNA, uh, messenger RNA. And then the messenger RNA is, is, is shuttled from the cell nucleus to the cell cytoplasm where the protein synthesis occurs. And the mRNA is like, a copy of the DNA, except it's, it's, a, it's a negative copy in the, in the sense, in the same way that a, a negative would print a, a, a photograph, you know, back in the day when before everyone, some of your listeners have probably never uh, <laughs> see, seen a photographic negative, but it's, right. but the point is the mRNA is, is, a, is a bunch of copies of the instructions on how to build a protein. 
And, and then when the cytoplasm gets these, it, it builds the protein based on the instructions in the mRNA. But we are human beings. So we don't have in our genome the instructions on how to build a protein for a virus because the mm. virus is a different species. Mm. So what the mRNA vaccine does is it gives our cells the instructions, the mRNA, on how to build these spike proteins. And so yeah. when our cell, our cell then is kind of tricked in a way and doesn't know, but it just sees a bunch of mRNA and says, okay, well, whenever mRNA is like instructions uh, on how to build a protein, but it's also kind of orders to build it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not only is it the blueprint on how to build a protein, from the genetic code, it's also an order from the commanding officer to, to build such a protein. So our cells get all these, cop, you know, these copies from, from the vaccination of the mRNA, and they say, okay, well, we're going to build this protein. So it doesn't matter that it's a viral protein. It's just, it's got the mRNA, it's got the blueprint. So it puts together a bunch of amino acids and out comes, you know, instead of some protein that we would use for our human tasks, it outcomes a spike protein of the virus. So the reason that's useful is, first of all, it's just the spike protein. It's not a live virus. So the spike protein itself doesn't cause us any harm. It only causes us harm when it's attached to the virus. And yet, there it is. It's a spike protein of the coronavirus. And even though it's made by our own hand, so to say, the immune system recognizes it as a non-human protein and starts making antibodies to it just like it would before. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden we're walking around with, we've made copies of these uh, spike proteins. The immune system is, is, is also saying, well, uh, this doesn't look kosher. So it's making antibodies to it. And so now we have antibodies against the spike protein. So two weeks later, when we're presented with a sneeze, you know, at the supermarket or whatever, we already have in our immune library, the antibodies against this spike protein. So we now have the we're coronavirus. Prepared. Yeah, we're prepared. Exactly. So that's, that's how, that's how the mRNA vaccines work. I got to tell you, professor, you know, it's difficult to describe, but I'm telling you, as you were describing it, I get tears in my eyes. Our scientists, you guys, this, this is just phenomenal. Well, I mean, I can't, I'm not a, a, a wet lab scientist. I'm a population scientist, so I can't take any credit for the ingenuity of the mRNA vaccines. And there have been vaccines for over a century that use other techniques to prep our immune system. I mean, the original vaccine was actually, well, the original approach was actually inoculation, which was just to give ourselves very small doses of smallpox. Is that what the J&J vaccine is, more so of a the, traditional uh, well, the J&J vaccine is a more traditional approach, but it's, it uses a, an adenovirus vector. So it's a little bit different than the mRNA vaccine. Oh, okay. I mean, the original approach is really not used at all. It's called inoculation. Mm. And we don't use it anymore because it's potentially mm. dangerous. But it was just mm. giving ourselves very small doses of the real pathogen in the hopes that we would you know, develop immunity without developing the disease that actually works, believe it or not. And sometimes it works fine. Uh, but the thing is, it's a, it's always a little bit of a gamble. It's uh, that you accidentally gave yourself uh, too much. Right. So the more common approach is to find 
some version of the virus that, you know, that doesn't actually cause human disease, but nonetheless confers protection. So first it was inoculation, which is where basically where you just give yourselves very small doses of smallpox and you're protected. But oops, uh, if you give yourself, you know, sometimes it's too much and yeah. you die. Yeah. So it's uh, dangerous. And dangerous. And then Jenner invented vaccination but, uh, and, and the modern, you know, the modern day descendant of the Jenner smallpox vaccine is, is the vaccinia virus, which is a cousin of the smallpox virus. And the vaccinia virus, when we're exposed to it, just causes like a little scar, but confers uh, protection. So the antibodies that stick to vaccinia will also stick to and neutralize um, smallpox. And so, in fact, smallpox was eradicated that way using the, the vaccinia vaccine. So people who have been vaccinated against smallpox, they have a small scar, which is a small price to pay for being protected against a very deadly virus. And the reason being that a vaccine is a cousin of smallpox and it, the antibodies that stick to it also stick to smallpox, but the danger is much, much less mm-hmm. because it's not smallpox and it's mm-hmm. not a small dose of smallpox. Gotcha. Not, and then there are other, you know, there are other approaches that you, using uh, attenuated viruses, which is like the measles vaccine. It uses a live measles virus, but it's a virus which has lost its ability to cause measles, but it is actually a live like replicating virus and so on. So there's, there's many approaches to vaccine that, and and the MRNA is the most novel. And is this the first time MRNA vaccine has been used in any form? It's yeah. It's the first time that MRNA vaccines have been deployed. Yeah. uh, Yeah. At at scale. It's a new technology. It's promising for a number, for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, that I I've received an MRNA vaccine and I'm sure a number of, the KCI listeners have received an mRNA vaccine. And I mean, it's, it's promising because it's all based on genetic code. So now that we know that they work in the real world, you, you know, it's, it's possible to, to cook up a new one in the lab just by changing the genetic code of, of wow. what's, what's in there. Wow. So it's, it's a very, very promising technology for the 21st century. Excuse me for a moment, doctor, while I update our audience. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI COVID-19 public health professor, Andrew Neumer, giving us his perspective of where we are in the pandemic this week of May 10th, 2021. Are the vaccines being used right now, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, would you consider them to be equal in effectiveness? Uh I mean, where the rubber meets the road, I, I would. And I and I still think the best advice for people is to get the first one they're offered. Yeah. The J&J vaccine seems to be somewhat less effective overall against preventing any COVID illness, but equally effective against preventing severe COVID illness. Which is really and so, important. And plus, exactly. it's only you only have to have it done one shot, right? Exactly. I mean, there's a number of angles here. I mean, I mean, I mean, some of your listeners may wonder, like, well, why would I talk about, you know, J&J being somewhat less effective? And, you know, if if I want to encourage people to get vaccinated, but I mean, anyone can Google this information. And I'm a big believer in, you know, giving people the the truth, which, which they can find out any anyway. So, you know, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you want to prevent the severe cases. And so right, the J&J right. works fine. It's also, as you pointed out, it's one shot. So, you know, some people are happier with one shot. So there's going to be people 
who will actually seek out J&J as opposed to trying to avoid it. So, you, you know, there's, there's a vaccine for, for everybody, I hope. And someone who is kind of raising an eyebrow at, the, at all these new vaccines and, but, but needs one to go on vacation to Hawaii or something, you know, they could get the J&J, which is one and done. And, uh, you know, someone else who's, who's really excited by the vaccination, you know, if, if she prefers or can get, you know, one of the mRNA vaccines. And so, you know, I think it's, it's fine to just, you know, be, be candid about, you know, what, what's out there, but, but all three of them are work fine. And, and, uh, you know, based on international experience, the, the vaccines that the United States have, the three vaccines that we're deploying seem to be the three best performing Mm. vaccines. So here in the U S of a, we're very fortunate. Very good. Apparently there's about 8% of the people who get the Pfizer or Moderna two shot vaccine, but they only get their first shot. And then, you know, about 8% of the people, you know, are either delaying or not getting it. Is that second shot extremely important, moderately important? Yeah. I mean, my advice is to get both and it's a little tricky. I mean, we do know that the vaccine is immunogenic and quite protective after a single dose. The second dose kind of seals the deal and provides the best protection against variants. And really it's it's how the vaccine was trialed. So we really have the most data on people getting two doses. So my advice to all the KUCI listeners is to, if you've gotten the Moderna or Pfizer to get both doses, and if it's been eight weeks, it's not too late. Just get, get your second dose. Gotcha. Uh, it's, it gives you the longest lasting protection as far as we are aware. And it, it really seals the deal. It makes you fully vaccinated. Now, if, if you got the J and J, then you're, you're, it's one and done. Congratulations. And if you, and if, and for anyone who's listening, who, who's been holding out and waiting for more safety data or, or, you know, just, just for whatever reason, hasn't been vaccinated yet. It's been, it's been less than a month as we record this, that California has gone uh, full eligibility on 16 and up for vaccination. So th- there may be some listeners who, uh, who didn't qualify under an occupational or age-based tier and and for those listeners, it's only been three and a half weeks since, since the st- anyone in the state could get it. So maybe they haven't gotten around to it yet. And and to them, I would say, you know, if if you get the Pfizer and, or Moderna to to plan on getting your second dose, and if you're adamantly against getting two doses and you still haven't gotten any doses, then try to schedule the J and J, and you'll be one and done. Can can you? We're, we're trying to achieve herd immunity, I understand. Can you tell us, you know, briefly, you know, why that's important and what percentage we need to get to? Herd immunity is important because it's how we're going to get out of this crisis. I mean, herd immunity is the state in which the virus stops spreading, you know, at large, unchecked, in spite of the fact that maybe not everyone in the population is immune, but enough people are immune that the virus doesn't find continuous chains of transmission. I mean, I think everyone listening to this on KUCI wants to be done with coronavirus. I mean, whether or not taking, you know, utmost care for 15 months and, and hardly ever going out or, or whether or not we believe it's 
been overhyped. I mean, I think we can all agree that we just want to get back to what life was like in 2019. Right. And the way we're going to get there, we'll probably touch on this in due course, but I mean, COVID is going to be with us for some time to come, but the way we get as close as possible back to where we were before is through herd immunity is through when, when you have an infection, it doesn't create chains of transmission. I mean, herd immunity is not a state where there's absolutely no COVID that would be called eradication. And and that would be ambitious at this point, but herd immunity is a state where we don't have unchecked chains of transmission. And it's impossible to say exactly what that percentage is. It's probably around 70%, like when 70% of the population is has immunity. But there's some caveats there. It could be 80%. We still don't really know. You know, after 15 months, the hardest thing for a scientist to say to the public about COVID is that we don't know. Because there's this expectation that uh, that we should know by now. And there's also a lot of people, you know, speaking on the media who speak with certainty about this or that. And honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a false certainty, in my opinion, most of the time. And so there's a lot that we don't know. I can't tell you exactly where the herd immunity threshold is for COVID. Shooting from the hip, I would say 70%, but it could be 80%. And the other, the other thing that's important is, is that COVID vaccination seems to provide, and, and we're, we're still finding out more about this phenomenon. So, you know, uh, keep in mind if you're listening to a rebroadcast of this, that this is basically as of May 10th, 2021. But, you know, vaccination seems to provide more durable immunity than, than actually surviving a natural COVID infection, which is unusual uh, because uh, surviving natural infection is in, in the typical situation provides actually more robust immunity than vaccination, but it seems to be on the inverse here. But the, the reason I'm saying this is that, is that the, the 80% or 70% of the population that has to be immune, it's a combination of uh, being Im- immune because you were vaccinated and being immune because you survived natural infection. And that can include people who survived asymptomatic natural infection. So it's not strictly speaking true that we need to vaccinate, say, 80% of the population. We can vaccinate maybe 60% of the population, and, and, there, and, and a lot of the population are survivors of natural COVID infection, um, you know, whether, whether we realize it or not. So that makes the job a little bit easier, although, although with all those COVID cases come, you know, the small percentage that, it, that are hospitalized and, and the percentage of those that, that die. So it's not something that we want to be cavalier about. But if we're being, you know, to give your listeners the whole picture, you know, immunity to COVID includes natural infection and vaccination. What percentage do you think we're at right now in terms of people who have been vaccinated? Uh, well, in the, in the county... We have some data on that. Let me uh, actually pull that up and tell you. I mean, statewide, you know, we're overall, we're actually at, this this data is a few weeks old, but we were, at at that point, we were in the 40% of all eligible 16 and up. Mm -hmm. So, and and Mm -hmm. since then it's accumulated. And Orange County is uh, doing about the same as the state, although there are some differences when you break things down by race, uh, the Latino population of 
Orange County is, is lagging a little bit relative to the Latino population of the state. So there are some differences when you with more granularity. But the vaccine penetration has actually been quite good. I mean, apparently it's been uh, slowing down in the last few weeks. So it, this is a phenomenon that we see with all sorts of innovations that people who, who get it at first, the early adopters are very much excited and you know, motivated. And so your listeners will remember, you know, in, in March and even before that there was uh, a lot of getting up early to get on to the vaccine portals to get to right. the, day, the day's appointments and what have you. And now in many locations, you can walk into a retail pharmacy and get uh, vaccinated. I mean, what I'd like to see is, is 100% of eligible adults, you know, get vaccinated. And so, you know, I'd like to see higher numbers. Is there anything that you can say to folks who are vaccine hesitant or, or don't want the vaccine due to safety concerns? Is, is there any? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. And first of all, uh, you know, I can, I can say that I have skin in the game. I've gotten vaccinated myself. And so I wouldn't, I would never, you know, advise the KUCI listeners to do something that I wouldn't uh, do myself. And so I've, I have vaccinated, um, you know, myself against COVID and, you know, the rate of adverse reactions is very low and, you know, far lower than the risk of getting COVID and having, uh, you know, hospitalization due to COVID, even for people who are, who are young, you know, b- below, you know, age 65 or below, even below age 40, uh, the risk of COVID is, is worse than the risk of a vaccine adverse reaction. And, you know, the, the prospect of long COVID, you know, which I'm sure the listeners have heard of means that if surviving COVID may, may mean that you're winded going up a flight of stairs, even six months later, uh, and, you know, which has, occurred in some cases. And so having some condition like that, that saps one's energy for months on end is just not worth the risk of, in my opinion, compared to a very small risk of having an adverse event from a vaccine reaction. So, I mean, we make risk balance assessments all the time, uh, subconsciously, like, you know, should we, you know, cross the street? Well, you know, you look both ways and you cross the street. You know, but how do we know that there won't be some car that comes whipping around a corner, you know, at 80 miles an hour to hit you while you're crossing the street? And I mean, you just, you make the calculation, right? Like you, you right. say, well, you know, I know, I know that none of my, none of my neighbors, you know, drive a Ferrari and, and, you know, the cars in my neighborhood are all driving the speed limit. And I know that if I look both ways, the chances are infinitesimally low that I'm going to get struck when I cross the street right. now. And this is all just something we do you know, subconsciously, we just know, you know, when it's safe to cross the street and when it's not. And when it comes to the vaccine, all of a sudden, we're, we're trying to trying to make the, uh, the, cal- the same calculation, but we're trying to do it in our head. And, you know, we're trying to weigh the risk of an adverse reaction against the risk of COVID. And these are all kind of intangible. And it, it becomes easy to make these calculation mistakes, because we're not accustomed to actually, you know, reasoning with very, very small percentages of, of, uh, of adverse events. And so, I mean, it's, it's well documented in psychological research that humans often overestimate the propensity of very unlikely events to happen. And so 
so we worry about, you know, snake bites and, and, and other things that, you know, are basically never going to happen to your average, you know, suburban dweller. And, uh, and, and, and it's the same with, with the vaccination. I mean, COVID vaccination is kind of a no brainer, but it's normal to get carried away by worrying about adverse events because we're not accustomed to thinking about these. And so I don't think it's foolish. You know, I don't think your listener, I don't, listeners who haven't been vaccinated yet are acting foolishly. They're just acting cautiously. And I, I don't, criticize them for that. But I, I would like to help them see that the most cautious thing they could do is, is actually get vaccinated and then protect themselves from the far more prevalent threat of COVID than to worry about the extremely, extremely rare vaccine adverse events. And the other thing I would say to someone, you know, who hasn't vaccinated yet and because they're hesitant is that, you know, it's, it's normal to be kind of skeptical of, of a new technology. I mean, I mean, how do we know that the mRNA won't, you know, cause us all to, you yeah. know, become lethargic or have our hair fall out or or whatever. And, mm. and, you know, not everyone is comfortable being like the first in line to get this new technology. Like, you know, if we go back to December of last year, when, when it was brand new. Right. And, you know, I, I understand that. And my colleagues who work on vaccines are, pr- are probably kind of saying what, <laughs> But I, I understand people are hesitant to, to try a new technology, but, it, you know, we're, we're at mid-May. It's been, uh, the vaccine has gone wide for, for six months. And uh, we have the actual clinical trial data going back even before that. And, you know, we know that at this point, we have millions of person years of observation of the vaccines. And we know that it's not causing lethargy and it's not causing, you know, hair loss. And the money is on, the, the vaccines are, are, are safe. And I, and I think we would have, you know, if, if any of these kind of lurking problems would, would be there, they would have surfaced by now. Right. Excuse me one more time, Dr. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI conversation show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is pandemic expert, public health professor, Andrew Neumer. And we're just you know, finishing up talking about vaccines. Well, one question I did have is if you're pregnant, should you be vaccinated? Professor, do you know? Yes. So the vaccines are not contraindicated during pregnancy. So a pregnant person can, can be vaccinated. Okay. If someone is, uh, you know, particularly concerned, they can talk to their uh, obstetrician. Perfect. Perfect. About that. But I mean, but I mean, in general, pregnancy is not a contraindication. So gotcha. They're safe. Will we need booster shots? Well, this is a a very good question. And the answer is nobody actually knows yet. There's an excellent possibility. So that we will, but it's not yet certain. These variants that are being generated all over the world, and there's now one, you know, prevalent in the Indian subcontinent. And it's possible that there will be some variant that has a significantly different enough spike protein that uh, the existing vaccines won't protect against it. And then, okay. uh, and that a booster would be needed. How are the vaccines working? Do they lose strength over time or do we not know that either? That is another great question. And, and the answer is we, we don't know. And okay. as, as I said, sometimes it's, it's uh, the hardest words to say, uh, but also the most honest is uh, we well, just don't know how long these last because we haven't had data on them for right. uh, for twelve months yet, even so. 
but having the vaccine is a heck of a lot better than having no vaccine and going back to November, February surge. Well, yeah, I mean, the evidence seems to be, I mean, I mean, that, um, that the vaccines are actually uh, performing well in the face of the variants that we have so far. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm optimistic that the vaccines will perform well in the face of reasonable variants in, in yeah. the future. That is to say variants that we can reasonably expect to occur. I mean, the, the booster thing is tricky. I mean, we get a typically a new formulation of the influenza shot every fall Mm, right and that's not really a booster honestly it's a new shot because it's a new strain of flu and uh but you you could think of it as a as a booster if you want i mean normally we we think of like every 10 years you get a tetanus booster it's a repeat of the exact same shot it's just you know after a 10-year delay and therefore it's a booster and the pfizer and moderna which are two shot vaccines you could think of as a shot and a booster but the fact that the booster comes you know either 21 or 28 days later depending on the protocol and and the fact that the the, the recommended you know f- dose is two shots uh, means it's a little bit of a of a gray area I, I wouldn't refer to those as boosters I would refer to those as like a just a two-part vaccine and if we then do another one after six months or after a year, then it would be a booster. But again, if you modify it, it's not really a booster. It, 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 we're getting into, I don't want to get lost in the yeah. weeds, but, yeah. uh, but I mean, it's, but I mean, there, there may be more vaccination in our future is, is, is what your okay. KCI listeners want, may, may want to know. And, and we'll have to just wait and see. Okay. What about pets? Have I seen that your pet can actually get and give COVID? Yes. Wow. So non-human mammals can be infected by coronavirus and can shed viable viral particles. Mm. I don't know that we really understand how much transmission is actually due to dogs and cats. And I don't think it's significant. I don't think your pet owning listeners need to really worry, to be honest with you, about uh, anything to do with uh, with their animals, and oh. uh, and I don't worry when I you know pass a, a dog, dog on, on the sidewalk. So, uh, but but I mean, it, it, so it, it it's I mean, epidemiologically speaking, I, I think pets are are kind of a a, a nothing. Okay, but. But some research but, has shown something. No, I mean, the, I mean, yes. So non-human anim, uh, mammals can be infected by by coronavirus. Okay. What about children? Do they need to be vaccinated? Well, this is a an interesting question. And sixteen and up can already be vaccinated. And so, I mean, six, sixteen and seventeen year old kids. Um, you know, there are probably some. Uh, people who are listening to this broadcast and, and have 16 year olds in their household who already are vaccinated and uh, adolescents 12 to 15 are being added to the groups uh, eligible for vaccination. Okay. So, you know, going forward in the late spring and, and early summer of 2021, uh, it's going to be vaccination for 12 and up. So 16 and up is already you know happening and, and it's going to be uh, basically all people at age 12 and up. 
where it really starts to get tricky and is, and the dosages, by the way, are, are the same. So that uh, a 12 year old or an, an adult gets the same uh, dose. Where it starts to get tricky is uh, for children, let's say age five to 11. And then even trickier still for, for very young children. But they're doing trials as we speak on uh, younger kids, kids on uh, age 11 and younger. And we really won't know what the recommendation is until we have the data from those trials. So we'll have to wait and see. Gotcha. But, you know, I'd like the KCI listeners to know that, you know, we'll be doing really well if all uh, 12 year old and up in Orange County or, or in California or, or in the United States or in the world are, are vaccinated. And so, I mean, because the risk of severe disease in someone age 11 or younger is very, very low. And yes, it's not zero, but, you know, there's also, you know, other diseases like scarlet fever or whatever that, that have risks that are non-zero. I mean, there's always going to be some disease risk in kids, one of any age. But, you know, COVID is a real threat. Elderly people, it's a, it's a threat to adults. And, you know, the benefit to an 11-year-old or younger in terms of the COVID vaccine is really preventing transmission in the community as much as it is uh, pre- preventing infection in that person. And so, you know, we have to hold the data to a really high bar when we evaluate the data on younger kids, because we're asking them to vaccinate to benefit not only themselves, but to benefit everyone else and perhaps more to benefit everyone else than to benefit themselves. And so we have to analyze the data in that light. I mean, for me to get vaccinated was kind of a slam dunk because it's, it's a big protection to myself. So there's a lot in it for me as well as it, uh, being in it for uh, for my fellow uh, citizens because uh, I'm not spreading, but and then for for 12 and up, it's similar argument. I mean, if I I don't have any children living with me, but if 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 I did and they were 12 and up, I get them vaccinated. But you know, for for the 11 year olds and younger, we really need to to look at the data when the trials are complete and see see what it shows. So stay tuned and and you know, hope to be back on your your airwaves. Uh, over the summer or in the fall or, or whenever, but uh, I'll be able to give your listeners more information about kid vaccination at that time. But 16 and up can get vaccinated today and 12 and up can get vaccinated imminently. And for younger kids, it's tricky. We need to look at the data, but for everyone to get vaccinated 12 and up is going to make a huge impact on the situation epidemiologically and a positive impact. Excellent. What about why is LA County at the yellow tier and Orange County is at the orange tier? It, we've had so many less deaths and maybe it's not that important, but can you give a sense of that? So, I mean, LA County just hit some of the technical benchmarks before Orange County. And so they've been able to move into the yellow tier. Orange okay. County was just a shade too high on the adjusted case rate, adjusted cases per uh, 100,000 population per week was uh just a, a, a like a decimal point yeah. too high in Orange County relative to LA County for us to move out of the orange tier. I mean, I know there are some businesses that can open more widely if if we're in yellow and then orange. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I realized to some of the small business people 
or or even to, for that matter, large business people like Disney, who are listening to this KDCI broadcast, who are you know waiting you know with clenched teeth so that Orange County can move into the yellow tier from the orange. And and I certainly am sympathetic to the economic sacrifices that the many and most business people have made uh, in terms of lost customers and lost you know revenue during during the whole the last fifteen months. And so I don't want to belittle the distinction between orange and yellow tiers, but that being said, there is kind of an element of kabuki theater here. I mean, per state mandate, the, all the tiers are going away for all 58 counties in mid-June. And so here we are wondering about orange versus yellow and why is LA in, in the yellow and orange counties in the orange. And yet, you know, within four weeks of this broadcast, the tiers are all vanishing. And so right. it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit absurd to, <laughs> to, to worry too much about it. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, and, and right. there is, I mean, there is an out that is to say if things, if there is a reversal then of fortune, yeah. let's hope not, then the state proclamation that the tiers are vanishing in mid-June uh, will not happen. But, right. but I mean, if, if all continues apace, the tiers are vanishing entirely in four weeks. And so for that reason, I can't get too exercised about which tier we're in because it's, it's a little bit silly yeah. from that perspective. Although, as I said, I'm not casting aspersions on your listeners who are small business people who for right. whom you know four weeks of extra business by moving to yellow would make a big difference so i just right, wanted to right. make that clear but thank you if you joined us late you're listening to uci conversations i'm your host kevin bostenmeyer and my guest is uci public health professor andrew neumer who is sharing his expertise about pandemics and covid19 do we still need to physically distance and wear masks well I mean, yes and no. I mean, the most important thing that we can do is vaccinate. And, you know, once we're vaccinated, we can be a lot more relaxed about both of those things. I mean, indoors still makes sense to wear masks because it's a pretty cheap and easy thing to do. Throw on a mask when you go to the grocery store. And, you know, we know that 99% of the transmission of COVID is indoors and so it's just like a, a, a nice, easy way to prevent transmission. For outdoors, I mean, the CDC is saying that outdoor recreation among vaccinated people can take place without masks. So if you're a jogger and you're vaccinated and you've been annoyed by jogging while masking, then the current guidance is you can take off your mask. I mean, outdoors is safe. Do we need to still be physically distant from other? I mean... Yes, in the sense that, well, sir, I mean, I mean, again, the answer to that depends in part on, on vaccination status, but we can't sort of have our cake and eat it too in the sense of, you know, if, if we believe in vaccination, then it means that we can, you know, get back to something close to normal once we're vaccinated. And so, I mean, what's the point of, of vaccination? Where's the big carrot for vaccination if it means, you know, that we continue to, you know, wear masks and have to physically distance from one another. So, I mean, we can be more lax when we're vaccinated, particularly outdoors. But I mean, at the same time, you know, if we're at the grocery store, I mean, this California still has a statewide mask mandate for indoor activities like that. Going to a concert, I would still mask. But I mean, I'm vaccinated and I do have faith in the vaccine. And so, you know, I think we will have a gradual return to normalcy. We're, we're doing, you know, these returns to normalcy at a, at a very deliberate pace. 
in large part because you know, many people are still unvaccinated, but also just out of an abundance of caution. And UCI is scheduled for in-person instruction in the fall. And so I will be in the classroom in the fall. And I don't intend to lecture with a, a mask on because I think it's, it's harder to be uh, heard. And it, uh, there is the same- a mandate that everyone on campus will be vaccinated. Is that? Well, that's right. So once the uh, vaccines are FDA approved, all faculty, staff and students will be required to vaccinate. The vaccines are currently FDA authorized. So it's sort of one step below approval. But I would, I would hope, you know, given everything we know about vaccinations, that, that most faculty, staff and students would want to vaccinate, you know, regardless. And I mean, I certainly, you know, wouldn't go back into the classroom without being vaccinated, but I am now vaccinated. And I'm a little bit tired of, of teaching over Zoom. And I'm, and I'm sure the students <laughs> listening to this are tired of learning over Zoom. And so, I mean, I think getting back into the classroom is going to be um, something I'm really looking forward to. I, I don't anticipate lecturing with a mask on because I think it makes it harder for my students to hear me. Uh, I certainly wouldn't request any student to remove her or his mask if if they weren't comfortable doing so. I mean, there's no reason a student needs to doff a mask if if she wanted to to wear it. The current state advice would be for masking, actually. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in September and whether or not that applies to faculty. But the governor has said that when the tiers vanish in mid-June, there will still be a statewide mask mandate. So I would assume that that would apply for classrooms. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But the real take home here is we need to vaccinate ourselves and that's how we're going to get back to normal. And we need to vaccinate the whole world and sooner than later. Gotcha. I'm glad you added that. What about my last question, flying on airplanes? Any advice for that? Airplanes are an interesting question. Airplanes actually have very good air filtration. So that is helpful. And airplanes have mask the FAA has a mask mandate. Mm-hmm. So my take is that flying in an airplane is fine for, uh, okay. for because of the good filtration that the airplanes always have had. Airplanes have kind of a bad reputation for having bad air, but they actually have uh, HEPA filtered air. So your listeners, KCI listeners can fly. Okay. My advice would be to get vaccinated before you fly. And that's also the CDC advice is that flyers should be vaccinated. But once you're vaccinated, you can fly to okay. you know uh, any place that will receive you. And, and for domestic USA flights, it's something that I think can be done safely. Get vaccinated and then fly is basically okay. the, the order of operations. During the flight, you'll have to wear a mask because that's the current FAA mandate. So basically get vaccinated, get a mask and go to the airport and you're fine. Very good. Professor, how important is it that the whole world be vaccinated? Well, so it's very important. And this ties into the the idea of of herd immunity. You know, one of the ways we discovered about herd immunity was actually some historical studies that were done in Iceland on measles. So Iceland is an isolated island. And back in the days before uh, steamships, it was even more isolated when everything was just done by sailboat. Mm. And you know, Iceland would have these measles epidemics, and then it would go for years without a measles epidemic, and then it would have another measles epidemic. Wow. And what would happen is, you know, Iceland would get at herd immunity, and so measles would kind of vanish from Iceland. 
And then it would come back when a, a sailing ship would bring someone with measles on it. And, and then you would have a measles epidemic, but not if that, if that sailing ship arrived like, you know, six months later, but only if the sailing ship would arrive 30 years later or 25 oh, years later. Like a generation. Exactly. Because what would happen is you would need time for the herd immunity to kind of wear off and new birth cohorts would, would come and create kids who were born and therefore had never been exposed to measles and weren't immune to measles. And so the lesson from that is though, that you know, herd immunity only gets you so far that as long as you have reintroductions of virus, you're going to have constant you know, flare-ups. Mm-hmm. And everything is kind of accelerated today because we, we're not talking about an isolated island. We're, we're talking about the United States, which is you know, in the center of North America. And then we're not talking about sailboats. We're talking about you know, commercial aviation, right. large jet airplanes landing in multiple cities mul- multiple times you know, a day or per city. So there's an in- incredible interchange of, of human beings you know, going on through long distance intercontinental air travel. So, I mean, herd immunity is great, but it's only worth it if everyone is vaccinated, you know, in, in India, Japan, you know, China, uh, Australia, Europe, Africa, I mean, w- wherever, because otherwise we're just going to get this constant b- bombardment of new, of new variants. And I mean, the way to reduce the temperature, so to say, of COVID transmission in the United States is in the long run, or in, even in the medium run, is to make sure that we start vaccinating everywhere in the world. You know, so so I can't you know stress enough that uh, you know we, we need to definitely start focusing on uh, and and the and the United States has has waived patent rights for these vaccines, which is a great first step in ensuring uh, worldwide access to the vaccines. But it is only a first step because. Uh, waving a patent on a vaccine is not like waving a patent on a tractor or a, a pickup truck or something. Uh, there's a lot of uh, really esoteric uh, tech that goes into to making vaccines, and so well, yeah, which includes like the the quality of the vaccine, right? Once once we start turning yeah, the, it over on an international level, well, I mean, ultimately we're going to have to. I mean, the the point of waving patent is the vaccine can be manufactured in the countries that, that need it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Brazil and, and Argentina and India and Vietnam and I mean, whatever, any country, Nigeria, uh, Italy, I mean, wh- I mean, you name it, you know, pick a country out of a hat that they would, you know, have a vaccine production facility, you know, in their country using the mRNA technology or, or what have you. But, but I mean, it's not as easy as that. It's not right. as easy as waving the patent because, you know, you can open a, a factory uh, to make a pickup truck in. Right. You know that you stamp the steel and um, and you you cast the uh, engine block and you and you sort of put it all together and I mean know. that that's hard enough, right? But to actually, this is for something that's going to go in your body, and there there are already concerns about you know people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, it's it's an interesting. It seems like it would be better to manufacture it here, and then if you could, and then send it out around the world. Well, I mean, I think we're doing both, in fact. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet, and, and we'd like to vaccinate, you know, I mean, maybe not everyone, because we talked about how, you know, the first priority would be 12 and up. But, you know, we're, we need billions of doses of, of vaccine. It's a formidable challenge. And uh, as you point out, you know, it, it would be hard enough to 
you know, produce tractors everywhere uh, overnight and making a vaccine is, is even harder, which is why I say it's, a, it's an important first step to wave. It's not going to be a, a game changer overnight. Right. Are they vaccinating in China? Yes, they are vaccinating in China. They have some homegrown vaccines in China. There have been some hiccups with those in terms of changing the, the doses to acknowledge the fact that some of the doses weren't, some, the, some of the proposed vaccine schedules weren't, weren't working uh, as well in practice as, as they had hoped. So, but, but yes, the Chinese are, are vaccinating as well. Professor, unfortunately, we're all out of time. And I, I just, you know, thank you so much. I please come back as soon as you can. I only got about half my questions asked. But I think the big takeaway is if you haven't been vaccinated and you want to be vaccinated, there's all kinds of opportunities, many places you can just walk into. And if you're still hesitant, keep asking questions, ask friends, doctors, relatives, like, what are they doing? I've been vaccinated and I'm, I just can't tell you how much the burden, I, I'm still careful wearing masks, socially distancing, but it's a whole nother world when you get vaccinated. I d- definitely agree. And I would never give advice to the KECI listeners that I wouldn't do myself. And I am vaccinated against uh, COVID-19 and that I hope the KECI listeners will be vaccinated as well. Thanks again, Professor, for being with us. My pleasure, Kevin. Always happy to be on KUCI. Thank you again to UCI Public Health Professor Andrew Neumer for his continuing help sifting through all the information about the pandemic and what we need to know now. One of the important things that has been learned from this pandemic is just how important the field of public health is how we need experts taking a top-down look at everything going on to make important strategic decisions. Dr. Neumer will be back on UCI Conversations at the end of June to give us more updates and hopefully more good news on COVID-19. And now turning the page, coming up next is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the show that is always looking at the bumps in the business road and figuring out how to smooth it over with recognized business experts. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at my email, kboss at kuci.org. And this interview and all my past shows are available 24-7 on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, excited and committed to bring you nothing but informative, inquisitive, and positive talk radio. Take it to the bank. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Have a pleasant good evening. Keep working hard. And if you have not done so already, get that vaccine. Freedom is on its way. So long, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take it away, Piano Man Fred Kaplan.